This is another bottle down on Co-op Radio, KOOP Hornsby, Austin, 91.7 FM, and KOOP.org. I'm your host, Mark Rayshap, here to appreciate wines from all over the world and to talk with Austin's leading wine professionals, from winemaker to sommelier and everyone in between. Now it's time to put another bottle down. Good afternoon, Austin, Texas. Thank you so much for being out there. It's a uh, cold and rainy day. I almost feel like I'm back in Seattle, uh, although it would be June in Seattle at this uh, temperature and and rain. Uh, Thank you again for tuning in. We've got a great show for you today. We're going to be talking all about wine trends and what has been going on in in the industry. What are people out there enjoying from 2017 and also looking into 2018? So live in the studio, we have John Duncan from uh, who is a wholesaler in town. Great guy. He used to be a part of Co-op Radio, so we'll look, look forward to talking with him about that. And Karen Dante, who has been in the wine industry for such a long time. She is a owner of King Liquors and or manages, buys all the wine for King Liquors, a really cool spot up on Burnett Road in uh, north central Austin. So we're going to have some wonderful conversation about wine. I love any chance I can to talk with these really experienced folks. So we're just going to get settled and uh, be right back. Thank you so much for tuning in to Co-op Radio. Well, uh, we're live in the studio of KOOP, Hornsby, Austin, John Duncan and Karen Dante. Thank you so much for being here. Say hello to the audience. Hello, audience. <laughs> hello, audience. <Yeah. laughs> well, we're going we're gonna to have some fun talking about what has been going on in the past couple of years. You guys have been in the industry for so long and have so much experience and, and, and seeing trends come and go. And, and Karen, you have the retail perspective, so you can see uh, and, and tell us about how people are purchasing wine and appreciating wine from that retail side. And, and John, you have been in the retail side of, and sector of things, but you, uh, you have also uh, are now a wholesaler and you supply a lot of the restaurants and you see it from a little bit of the behind the scenes uh, characteristics. And, and you were reluctant to come on the show, but I really wanted to get you in because, <laughs> and you, you know, and it's interesting there, there, you see a different side of the business and I think it's a real valuable perspective. We, we call that the dark side, Mark. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, and people come and go to the dark side, right? <laughs> Karen, maybe let's start with you. I, I'd like to have you give us a little bit of your, your past and your history and, and your time with King and before or, or anything that's notable. I uh, started in restaurants um, and uh, specifically uh, buying wine with the other white people at Castle Hill. Uh, in its um, second location over on ba- uh, Baylor Street. So what, t- what year around was oh, this? Oh, wow. This was around 95. 
and uh, 96. But that was one of the uh, really fun things about working at Castle Hill is that the owners allowed uh, the wait staff to pretty much be in charge of the wine list. And so that was um, a wonderful opportunity to get to taste a lot of wine in a really kind of safe environment where you could and then you could taste it and decide what you liked about it and then you could sell it to to other people and I really enjoyed doing that and so went from there to um to retail at um and then just one thing I really love about wine is that um it's just infinite knowledge right. you can you're you're constantly learning right. new things and and that really um appealed to me a yeah. lot and it was very very uh i think that's a very fun side of the business the um we and don't and we don't talk about that enough that that there's this passion that comes from knowing and a drive to learn more, and you can never know it all, right? Mm-hmm. And once you, you think you grasp something, something changes, vintages <gasps> change, they start planting different grapes in There's a different There's so way. many different kinds of grapes right. on the planet, and, uh, and they're constantly finding grapes that we thought were extinct, and then they find a little patch of them in some bywater in Italy, Right. and start making wine out of it and there's a market for that right. and it's so much fun to try them and to and to learn the history of them absolutely but wine is it's it's just it's infinite knowledge yeah and you need to a lot of people say to to be a wine lover and 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 a, and a wine professional you have to be part historian mm-hmm. part linguist part geologist <laughs> part scientist well, it's really um, wine is geography too right. you yeah. really you need to know about um, the geography the geography of certain areas all over the world I know it. and um, people I mean I, I people ask sometimes do you do you speak French well I speak wine French right right exactly I mean because we, we have to <laughs> learn, know how to read the bottles I mean you right. know it's same with Italian we speak wine Italian right. but um, it is um, it's a great jumping off point for different kinds of knowledge right. and I think that we do have a passion for what we're doing and I think that we um, we, we you have to love it absolutely and we do love it yeah well it's great to have you in the co-op studios John what did you were you starting around the same time uh, in the wine business? What was your first foray into the wine business? No, actually, I was stuck at Co-op Radio in 1995, Mark. <laughs> right, right. And I had. <laughs> um, I started out at Wiggies in 2001, right? And then I wanted to have my own store, so I got retail experience, became a retail buyer. Um. Whole Foods, Twin Liquors, um, worked with John Rennick at the Austin Wine Merchant. And um, then Specs came to town. And I realized that my own store would probably be a commercial suicide, to uh, coin a, uh, to use a, a co-op radio phrase. Right. And um, thought I would get into wholesale because the, the, the fun of buying retail was um, slowly going away at the big stores. It was becoming top down, and um, can you can you describe that a little bit more? What what is that concept of a big store comes in? Does that mean there are bigger brands or uh, more push and pull behind the scenes? What 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 is that dynamic that changes? And I think a lot of people listeners don't really understand that behind the scenes. It's hard to 
to understand it without having, you know, without going working in the environment. But in the, in the good old days when I was a, a buyer at Whole Foods, reps would come into the store with a bag of wine and they'd leave with orders of 28, 56 cases. So that was a lot of freedom. And that, that means that you uh, in that position could really say, hey, I really like this wine. I want to get behind it and tell my customers, right? Yeah, I would, I would taste the wine, get the price, place the order, take the UPC code and the price upstairs, and it would come the next day. Yeah. Okay. Now it is m- much more corporate, corporate and con- top-down control right. as far as there are not a lot of people in the retail environment making decisions anymore. So there's more, um, more uh, dictated from a top corporate office coming yeah, down. Yeah. yeah. So it was fun back then. Yeah. But I didn't see that really continuing. So I got into wholesale. And it's nice to work days yeah. um, and not, you know, get home at 10 o'clock at night. Right. And so I've been in wholesale. I've, I've been in the business 15 years and I've been half of it in retail and half in wholesale. Yeah. What I'd like to, you know, this was 2001, you said you kind of get started, Karen, 1995. What were, what were in those early days, what was Austin drinking in terms of wine? Like what was the hot wine at at that time? We couldn't give rosé away. Right. So nobody drank rosé. No, we had rosé at Wiggy's. You remember. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And they, we could not, I mean, 1099 was too expensive. They were like, no, it's sweet. We don't want to touch that. They thought it was white Zinfandel. But meanwhile, you were tasting high-quality French dry rosé that that uh, would be easy to sell these days. Or no, was it a different product that was coming in? They they weren't even coming in. They right. they they probably were on the uh, East Coast, but they but they weren't making it to Texas. Okay. And uh, every now and then, one we'd come across one, and but you know, and and even if we did and. And I know that's one part of our jobs. We have to keep an open mind about right. things when we're tasting. And, but whether we loved it or not, we couldn't sell it. Right. And that's the bottom line. <laughs> right. And that's what you have to think about. Okay, so no rosé. What, what, what else, what else did you notice? I remember at Castle Hill, one thing that totally took off was conundrum. Remember, that's when Camus Conundrum kind of first came on the scene. Oh, my God. They and, had that at Mezzaluna, too. Okay. And that, and I, I remember being told by somebody from Camus that one reason why Camus Conundrum became the be-all that it was was because Castle Hill was selling it by the glass. Right, right. And right. got it in front of West Austin women yeah. who just took it and ran with it. Yeah. And now... I, I don't even want to have it in my store. And if folks are, are not familiar, so Camus came up with this this white blend that had, I believe, a little bit of sweetness. Exactly. And ma- maybe it was a little Gewürztraminer that kind of livened it up, and it, and it became a, this huge phenomenon. It was a kitchen sink blend. Right. It had all sorts of different things in it. A little residual sugar. And residual yep. sugar. And residual which residual was sugar. I, I, I had, they recommended it to me at Mezzaluna. I was on a date with my wife, Claire. <laughs> and I grew up with, you know... Um, French wine and California wine, you know, dry Chardonnay. Sure. And I sent it back. They, they, the server was was plugging Conundrum, and I didn't know what it was. This was back then, early '90s or whatever. And right. I was like, I don't want this. It's sweet. And I sent it back. Right. <laughs> Badge of honor. Right. But back then, we had how many restaurants do we even would we even go to, Karen? I mean, we're talking about it. the scene today is huge. Right. And we didn't have sommeliers. Making, make, making these esoteric selections and putting together these complicated lists. It was a lot of 
monovarietal, so Cabernet, Chardonnay, Sauvignon Blanc, Merlot, and there wasn't nearly the amount of imports. Right. So it was. So Texas know. was unlike New York and maybe San Francisco, uh, or really just New York, which is very import dominated. Texas was really kind of your California, uh, and of course the the Texas wine industry was just a very big baby nascent. at that point. Right. It was yeah. just a nascent industry. Yeah. If you're just tuning in, this is another bottle down on Co-op Radio, KOOP 91.7 FM and KOOP.org. We're talking live in the studio with Karen Dante from King Liquors and John Duncan, wholesaler, new vintage, uh, Dionysus, uh, many different portfolios that that he has and and very groovy wines. I always like uh, seeing what wines John is representing. Can you guys... um, Talk a little bit about that 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 supply chain thing. That that how many different stages it has to pass uh, with people testing the wines before it actually makes it to the shelves or or on the the restaurant lists. If people don't know that intricate play of of different tiers, you mean as far as the, the buying process? Yeah, as far as a, a wine that makes it to the shelf have to, has to be approved, like you said, not just by the retailer but also by a, a few other people in the supply chain, right? Well, yeah, it has to come into the country to begin with. Right. If it's not made here already. If it's not made domestically. Right. Um, so you have every every European wine has an importer. Right. Or a direct importer. So a small distributor that direct imports. So there's so people go to Italy and they go, I love this wine. And you go, well, I'm glad you enjoyed it, but you're we've never seen it and it's not in you know in Texas. Right, right. So, so you have that importer mar- making his or her mark on the, the portfolio that they import, or they have to vet the wine as well. They're very influential, and of course, Kermit Lynch is the most famous. Right. So um, that example is becoming less and less. I think direct import on a small scale is becoming more and more, and I think that's a trend you'll see because the small distributors have to compete, and they bring in wine directly from Italy. The margins are higher. They have exclusivity. Right. And I think you'll see a lot more of that. Um, especially with the sommeliers being so adventurous. But it's yeah. not just that, too. I mean, you're, you're talking about in order to be imported into this country and then make it as far as, as Texas, there has to be a certain amount made right. to get that mm-hmm. far. Right. And a lot of times, say you're in Italy and you go to a winery and you taste this beautiful wine that you fall in love with, you know, part of its charm might be the fact that it's a very small amount made. And so there's no way we're going to be able to get that here in Texas. That's part of the... But but once, to your question, once it gets here, is what you're thinking as far as the... Well, well, that vetting process, how many people have approved it before it makes it to the shelf? First, you have the importer, right? First, you have the producer who is putting their name on it, and they're saying, I'm making something good enough to put my label on. And then you have the importer that says, I want to bring it to to the U.S., right? Or sometimes that importer is also importing directly to Texas. The The key link for what most people see is the distributor. So the importer sells it to the distributor, the distributor has a group of salespeople and they go out and make it happen. Or with the big the big accounts, you have a chain account manager. So you have one guy that handles Whole Foods, right. Central Market, HEB, whatever. So you get it authorized and then you get your boots on the ground and you go out there and you get it placed. Um, or they come or it comes down from on high. You're gonna have twenty eight cases of this next week. Right. You know, learn to love it. <laughs> you have some history with this. Yeah, yeah. Don't yeah. be so shy. We, we all do. We all do. 
Well, I find the business business side of wine very fascinating, and and the and the trends, and that's what we're we're doing here. If you're just joining us, we're talking about how the wine industry in Austin has been evolving, and uh, and then what we're hoping to see, what we've seen in 2017, and and what we're hoping to maybe see in 2018. So, uh, Karen Dante and John Duncan are are with us here, hugely experienced folks in the wine industry. Um, so, so we went from the nineties in Austin being so limited and, and what are kind of the, the, the massive changes that you've seen and maybe, you know, going to, to, uh, placing ourselves in 2017 last year. I mean, the diversity of wines is so different. Uh, yes, we have some big players, but Karen, you're, you're a testament. You, you have King Liquors, which is, uh, you make all the decisions for that and you don't have to deal with some larger corporate entity, right? No, I'm pretty, I'm limited in to what my guys, my buyers, uh, distributors bring me, right. but they know that I'm pretty, that I like to see the stuff that's a little more off the beaten path. I, I'd rather not see a giant corporate right. entity wine. I'd rather see something from a smaller house that we're lucky enough to get into to Travis County right. in yeah. Texas, but they are... Um, you know, it's. I think that one thing that has affected, at least my business, has been the um, the way Spanish wines have changed in the last uh, fifteen years. How they've. I've, I kind of. I tell some of my customers, it's like Spain. They've been dragged kicking and screaming into the the twentieth century. I'm really not sure they're in the twenty first century yet. Right, yeah. All the way. Uh, and a lot of times you taste those wines that definitely are 21st century wines from Spain and they're not all that good, (laughs) but, um, I think that's had a big effect on what we have to sell here. I think it's, it's, um, the parameters have changed and they've grown and, um, Italian wines, I think have followed a little bit and become friendlier and easier to sell to, less experienced right. uh, wine palettes. And I think that's our part of our job, I, as I see it, right. is to, to get people out of their California rut right. and get them drinking some uh, European and South American varietals that is, they might not have had. Right. Is that where your heart lays? I, mm-hmm. I, I know Definitely. that w- when you study wine, it, uh, kind of all roads eventually lead to Euro- Europe and, and the old world because that was kind of where it where it uh, began. Yes. And, um, and then, John, you said you, you kind of grew up t- uh, tasting and drinking European wines as well as California, right? Yeah, you got to remember that back in the day in, when there wasn't, we really French wines were considered the end all be all, right. and there was French wines and domestic wines that that are really, unless you were in an Italian restaurant, and then you you may have a pretty limited selection. But I mean, you look at Spanish wines, look at um, the people that brought in Pescara to begin with, classical wines of Spain. Like before people before that importer brought in uh, Roberto Duero, it was all Rioja. Yeah. You know, we're talking 30, 25 years ago, but I'm just saying now we have wines from every nook and cranny of Spain. Right. You yeah. know, but you'll, I think, speaking to that, you're seeing global transition between traditional and modern in many, many different regions, and particularly in the high profile regions, Barolo, Rioja, Bordeaux, to where you're, we don't want to get too technical, but there's ways to make a wine 
that's ready to drink and easier to drink. Right. Okay. And that it may not be outside of Rioja. It may not be that, that you know, I may not be losing that much typicity right. in Spain, but in Bordeaux and Barolo and other big European regions, you're seeing a shift away from, um, Traditional Ta- wine? Traditional wine that gives you a sense of place. Right. And sometimes they're nice, but they don't really speak to you so, but, uh, of that region. So you're lamenting that, of course, uh, when you lose a sense of your place for this generic taste that is modern, well-made wine. I mean, that's a shame for the wine lover and for the historian and for for all of... Uh, Maybe. Right? Maybe. But I think that I, my point is, is that I think that there is a backlash and then a lot, I see a lot of producers go modern, almost start to lose their uniqueness and then say, okay, well, um, first of all, can we actually lose our uniqueness? And then uh, now that we've done the modern thing, can we go back to some traditional winemaking techniques that might bolster that character? Is that what you see, Karen? Well, I think that the the winemakers who... Well, I bet I'm going to back up. It's also a matter of what you, what your definition of success is. Right. Yeah. And if your definition of success is that you sell out your vintage, um, in the wink of an eye, or if your definition of success is that you have made a wine that personally you are proud of and that you can hold on to a little bit and disperse amongst your friends and family and so it just I mean there's just different there's different definitions of success as far as that goes I think for a winemaker and we see that a lot I think too and again with uh, domestic wines I think a lot of times the domestic winemakers their definition of success is that they want to get on a corporate wine list they want to get on that wine list that's going to be put in front of a whole bunch of people at a giant steakhouse in many different cities in this country. Right. And um, they are going to do everything they can to protect that aspect of their winemaking. And it has, a, to use John's term, that has a dark side, a very dark side, in my opinion. Right. Because it, um, it makes you want your wine to taste the same every single vintage, right. no matter what Mother Nature gives you. And there also could be some, uh, since the stakes are so high, there could be some you know, money uh, oh. situation uh, going on behind the scenes. No doubt. We need to take a short break and hear some announcements. Guys, I'm having such a fun converse, uh, time with this conversation. We, we still need to talk about the trends in 2018. It's so great to, uh, to have you both in the studio. Let's take a short break, and we'll be right back. This is Co-op Radio. My name is Mark Rayshap. It's Another Bottle Down, 91.7 FM and KOP.org. All right, we're back. It's 125 in Austin, Texas, and you're listening to KOOP 91.7 FM and KOOP.org. Maybe you're streaming online. Maybe you're listening to the podcast. Uh, the station has a lot of amazing news and public affairs shows that podcast their 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 content, and uh, it's a it's an amazing resource. I know I always try to listen to many of the shows here if I miss them live, and you can do that often by searching koop.org for the show, and they will most uh, most of them have a link on their show page. 
page on the webpage. Uh, and also you can often search that show in the iTunes store. We're trying to work on a cohesive way to get the co-op podcasts, um, but most of them are on the iTunes store. So stay tuned for more information about that. Hey, I want to mention that uh, we have Membership Drive coming up. It's starting uh, in a- about 10 days or so. And, uh, and remember, it's the Membership Drive is shortened. So not next Tuesday, but the Tuesday after that will be our only Another Bottle Down Membership Drive show. So if you would like to support this show, mark your calendars and get ready for that. It's, um, there's going to be antics. I'm going to be making uh, uh, other programmers taste wonky wines, and, uh, and we'll have a really good time. Uh, it, it probably won't be the Rot Gut show, but uh, we might do some other other fun things. So um, check out the co-op webpage to learn more about donating and all of the great things that we do. There's a big blue donate button. It says donate now. You can't miss it. Support your community radio station. It's it's really important. Before we get uh, into our back into our interview with John Duncan and Karen Dante, uh, I want to just say thank you for um, two things that Another Bottle Down has has been uh, acclaimed and uh, really been honored to receive. Uh, there was an honorable mention by the Austin uh, Food and Wine Alliance, their 2017 grant program, and uh, there was amazing uh, businesses and nonprofits that received funds from the Austin Food and Wine Alliance, and uh, and I'm going to try and do something with some of the grant recipients in the future. But uh, just to mention uh, two of the, the top three, Snodgrass Farms up in Georgetown is doing amazing things with raising free-range meat, stress-free, um, and and having a welcoming home for wounded veterans. Fond Bone Broth out of San Antonio is uh, is doing things to support local innovators in or, or nationwide innovators in the food industry. And Hills of Milk and Honey Farm out in Dripping Springs is doing a lot with children and education for knowing your food and your food system a little bit better. So you can see all of the recipients at Austin Food and Wine, uh, I'm sorry, austinfoodwinealliance.org. And um, and wanted to thank all of the co-op community for the Silver Michael Award. So we uh, um, received best uh, NPA show, News and Public Affairs show, and I was really humbled because co-op has amazing news and public affairs programming, uh, shows that do real good to the community, that tackle real local issues in a very unbiased way, uh, environmental issues, film, the arts. Uh, we even have a library show, which uh, the Austin Public Library show volumes is is a favorite of mine. I just love that. And some of our news shows are um, are the opposite of fake news, really hitting on the issues and not afraid, very daring stuff. So uh, to be awarded uh, that honor from the station is, um, I, I don't know if it's it's fair with all the good stuff, but I'm very honored. So for all of the co-op community uh, who voted, thank you so much for that from the bottom of my heart. Thanks guys. Okay, <laughs> let's talk about wine and uh, and get back into this. Um, it's so nice to be here talking about wine for an hour every week and live in the studios, John Duncan and Karen Dante. We kind of, uh, we're going to have to rein in everything and get a little bit more focus <laughs> in this half hour. Um, and, and 
So I, I want to maybe um, we we touched on some of the large retailers moving into town and and uh, creating some trends that that uh, might change the industry. John, do you want to elaborate on how that has affected your life as a wholesaler and the and kind of a power shift or power dynamic that's going on? As far as the large retailers, yeah, yeah, and just the about general. Uh, who, you know, one of the things that's very interesting and inter- and interesting to me is who who's the tastemaker? Who are the people that are steering the industry? And mm-hmm. and does that come and go? Um, and then what wines are they steering? And uh, is that uh, is that accepted by the public and not or not? <laughs> that's an interesting topic because yeah, you're seeing a lot of consolidation on on premise and off. So. We, but explain what on-premise and Yeah, I was going to say, yeah, we, right. we, we, when you're consuming at a restaurant or you're buying it off. Okay, so on is to consume and then off would be at a retailer. On-premise, you consume at the location, yes. which is a restaurant or a wine bar, et cetera. Yeah, so, you, so to begin with, and I think this is what has enabled the rise of the sommelier in Austin, is that you've had consolidation at retail in terms of who's making the decision. And as a wholesaler, that's who we are targeting. So we want to go taste with the, with the, someone's making a decision. Right. So when you have more consolidation at retail, it enables the on-premise buyers, the restaurant buyers, the sommeliers to have more, much more power than they used to because we, can, we don't have access as wholesalers to the top dogs at Whole Foods and Central Market, uh, Costco, top, you know, Total Wine, places like that even twin liquors even a local place can be hard to get into and keep in mind you have how many more wine vendors than you used to karen there's there's 50 or more 70 at least seven 50 50 distributors running around austin trying to sell wine most of them were in my store this morning yep yeah (laughs) and she sees she's she's open to seeing people so a lot of people just don't even don't even a lot of people just Cut off the small guys. Right. And to be clear, uh, a wine, so if you're seeing a label on a shelf, that doesn't have multiple distributors. That one wine yes. is with one distributor. That's a good We point. have to be clear about that because that's not how every food chain uh, or supply chain right. works. Every state. And states not how every state rules. works, right. too. But in Texas, um, so when you say, I'm only going to work with four distributors, you're limiting yourself to the products that those distributors carry. And if uh, a distributor you don't work with has a wine that you want you almost have to start doing business with them to uh, and then there's might be strings attached to that exactly and well. and you're gonna see I think more consolidation uh, on premise at the restaurant level because the restaurant groups are so strong now right and they're they're getting stronger and more and more people are going to these restaurants they're the new thing right that you, and then but those restaurant groups only have one buyer yeah have one wine buyer Right. So you may go to five different concepts at at one particular restaurant group. That's one buyer that really is controlling those lists. Right. So it it's it may look like a lot of new restaurants, but you'd be surprised from my perspective yeah. how how few of these new restaurants are local, independent, standalone. So that's that Austin consolidation idea that that there's one person controlling several lists. Now that's not to say that that person isn't saying, well, these wines are better for this cuisine at that restaurant and this chef's food. Uh, it's just as a as a time of uh, as a matter of their time and trying to get in to see them and and their resource of time. It's limited. But the thing about it is, don't you think? Uh, what I see is that, but they really don't make that distinguished. 
that that distinction. Okay. Because they're just they're just going to buy. They don't have time to make that distinction. Right. They're just going to buy. They're going to buy for one. They're going to buy for all the restaurants, and they're going to buy one wine for all the restaurants, aren't they? A lot of the time. Mm, not necessarily. No. I mean, there'll be different concepts with. I mean, you have your French concept here, so you're going to have Cremant de Bourgogne by the glass there. You have your um, you know your seafood concept here. So I don't. I don't see it's it's not as homogenous as 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 all that as it looks to a consumer. Gotcha. It but but from a from a perspective of the diversity that's actually out there, you're you, you, there's only so much they can they can right. they can fit in there. You know. So um, we need to move forward a little bit, uh, Karen. I really wanted to ask you that since I think you have a really good handle on what your consumers are and your customers are, are wanting, um, how much do people come into you and say, hey, I want uh, something that I've never had before, or I want this advice, or I like this and this, and I want to go there instead of just a, um, you know, a retail spot where they might just pick up a, a nice label or something like that? Do you see Austinites receptive to your advice? Definitely. Yeah. And it's, um, and that's what is really, I think, the most fun. And we try, I try, and with my, the people selling to me, we try to, um, to make it to where they always have something new right. and different to yeah. try. Right. And, and I think I try to turn them that way when yeah. they'll come and they'll say, well, I'll say, so what do you usually drink? Well, and, and nine times out of 10, the answer is going to be cabs. Right. So let's do something different. <laughs> I mean, and, and invariably I'll say, so what do you drink? Cabs. What are you having tonight? Pizza. Well, we're not going to do that. <laughs> we're going to go do something else. Right. So, so, so how about an Italian? There's right. a thousand different grapes in Italy. Yeah. And, and how many of those are white? Yeah. And we have many of wines to get people off. We have a 12-step program to get off Pinot Grigio. <laughs> <laughs> that that you, there's there's Grichetto, Vermentino, Vernaccia. There's all kinds of Italian white wines that are they're just just fine. They're right. not going to bite. But I mean that's that's part of the problem is is that it, it's loosening. And then this and the Psalms have a lot to do with this is taking this to the next level on mm-hmm. premise at restaurants to where people are trying different things because they're at a restaurant. Yeah. Whereas at retail. It's a little harder sometimes to talk you into it. And, and typically at a restaurant, uh, there's a lot more wines open and, and it's legal to give a taste of something. Yes. Whereas there's more baggage with that on a retail situation. Um, I've written down a few trends that, that I've kind of seen throughout the years and I want your uh, perspectives on it. Let's start with sparkling wines. So, mm-hmm. you know, uh, champagne is kind of what we think of as king. Is, is, is uh, champagne still king in your, in your <laughs> impressions? Because we've seen a lot of other ones, you know. That's well, definitely, let, that's a two-part two yeah, part question yeah. because everybody thinks that all sparkling wines are champagne. Right, right, yeah, right. and the second part is, Mark, are, are you buying or are we <laughs> buying it ourselves right right well well let's talk about this just in the in the if people want like you know that that uh you know without a price attached you know any they're they're a celebratory thing i mean are people still showing a love for champagne yes well but again i think it's because they they don't realize that when they walk through the door and say i'm looking for champagne right they really aren't looking for champagne because champagne starts at my store at 40 dollars a bottle right, right but they're looking they're looking for something that Usually that is dry, right? And that is um, 
you know, so let's start with 20. there. So let's start with there. That that uh, the the palette is has gone a far ways from the '90s when we were talking about uh, having some sweetness and whatnot to to being dry. Is it is it going the furthest to being brut nature? Brut nature is the driest of the dry. So that means that no sugar. So are we seeing that? Uh, do you see more people going that way, or are now are we lashing back to something else? Only when I steer them that way. And which I do very often because I'll say, are you looking for something dry? Are you looking for something more fruity? And invariably they'll say dry. Say, hey, look, try this Brut Nature, which actually is drier than a Brut. Right. And they'll um, invariably, they are very pleased and happy to try it. And they'll come back and they'll buy it again. But I really, back to what you were saying about just the trend that really, I think, started a f- several years ago of bubbles being very popular. Yeah. It, it, I think we take that back to Prosecco. Yeah. And Prosecco has, has almost become as, um, I think, as much of the vernacular as champagne has. And people don't realize there's lots of sparkling wine in Italy that's not Prosecco. Yeah. That's not going to be that specific grape in that specific region. And that specific style. Right. And that there, and I think it's, I, I look at it as our job to, I, I try I try to get everybody to leave knowing something that they maybe didn't know when they walked through the door. Yeah. If I have, if I'm given the opportunity. And sometimes people are conducive, sometimes they aren't. Well, well that's a great, that's a great concept that if every time you go to buy a wine, you learn one more thing about the world or mm-hmm. about your, yourself exactly. or something, exactly. the world would be a better place, the I food. think. About the food, right. The food that's that right. goes with it. Right. So is Prosecco, uh, are we seeing, is it still on fire? Is it still climbing or is, have we seen a dip? I yeah. think it's still on fire, and I think um, sometimes I do feel though that that Austin, for as as forward a thinking a city as we are, we're still we really still lag behind the coasts. I think in a lot of trends, and Austin is is not really as caught up in the wine world as a lot of other cities are. And, so while, while but Prosecco Austin, is very popular. Right. So what would be an example of that um, that, that might be hotter in New York that we're, we're several years behind? Can, can you think of an example? Well, uh, wine in cans. Wine in cans. Wine in cans that I think is really just kind of on the cusp in Austin and is really just, especially sparkling wine in cans. And you're starting to see, um, I'm having a lot of people come in and ask for them. Yeah. There's uh, some, you know, some flavored sparkling wine in cans that have become very popular. I think that it is more of a hot weather uh-huh. item. Right. And we haven't had a whole lot of that lately. <laughs> but um, I think I'm looking to that and in I, the spring and the summer this year, that that's going to be something that we're going to be selling a lot of. I definitely think we're going to see more wines and cans. There's, there's a few mm-hmm. Texas producers doing that, mm-hmm. and, and I see the growth really, really interesting. Um, well, that, that kind of brings us to other packaging, you know, or do we want to move on from sparkling wine? John, any comments on sparkling wine? Well, I think sparkling wine's a great example of how far the, um, the wine scene has come in the last 15 years. That, and don't forget Cava. This is huge, you know. I never that, forget Cava. Never, don't forget Cava. <laughs> that, that Cava and Prosecco are basically, people are drinking sparkling wine in the middle of the week, you know, which is great. And Because they can afford to. Because we have so much selection. And, and they understand that it's not all, it's not, it's it, how the different, you know, varieties of, of, of bubbles go. But um, also, 
packaging-wise uh, kegs uh, with restaurants. So you have keg wine. Yeah. So you just, you know, open up the keg and let it flow. I it's know a, it's so a, many people who don't realize how many wines at restaurants are now, nowadays coming from kegs. It's remarkable. They don't have a clue. It, right. That what they're drinking came out of a it's keg. A great, it's a great innovation, especially if the restaurant plans ahead and builds a space, a, a temperature-controlled space for right. the red keg. Right. So you're pouring a red at 60 degrees, which is the temperature it should be, not 78, which it would be in August. Right. And it's temperature control, and you have no oxidation. Right. So it's a great innovation, and it's that's a trend that we'll, we'll definitely be seeing more of. Right. And these kegs, they eliminate waste for, for in, a, in a large mm-hmm. part. And then, like you say, you have more control over serving temperature and uh, and you don't have waste. So then um, so much of a wine by the glass is calculated uh, and the price is calculated via a potential to waste with a ke- keg wine. You don't waste anything. No. And it if you don't want to have a big wine program, I have my best keg account is a is a great taco place. So they have a full bar. And they have keg, keg, wine on keg, and they don't have any by the bottle selection because right. what do you need it for? Yeah. So that's a good trend. You okay. know, I mean, in pack, packaging will make a big difference. I think at the retail level, aseptic packaging is going to get grow bigger. I think too. Bigger and bigger and bigger. Yeah. Um, if you're just joining us, my name is Mark Rayshap, and this is another bottle down the wine show on Co-op, where we talk about uh, all things wine, hopefully the passionate side of wine. And today, um, just loving this conversation with John Duncan and Karen Dante on wine trends that we've seen and we'll probably see more of in 2018. Um, I, I have some more written down. Uh, I want your impressions on um, on the most sold wine in the U.S., and that's Chardonnay. Uh, Chardonnay almost has fallen out of favor with the wine geek crowd, but continues to be strong with consumers. Karen, what, what are you, do you, is California Chardonnay taking a dip or is it being reinvented? Where's Chardonnay at? That's such a loaded <laughs> we, question. We need so much more time, I right? know, we, we <laughs> well, do. Well, at least let's start with that it's outselling White Zinfandel now because <laughs> yeah, that was right. number one for a long time. Right, right. Well, and but it, it's still amazing to me how many people I'll get come through the door and they'll say, I'm looking for a buttery Chardonnay because that really does seem like it's something out of the 80s. But it happens. But, but it happens a lot. A lot of people are looking for buttery Chardonnay. They are looking right? for buttery Chardonnay. And this is, that's a classic example of how the, what the public wants is somewhat disconnected from what the, what, what the industry or the sommeliers are kind of going for. Because the sommelier would never oh. ask John, the distributor, um, do, hey, John, do you have any buttery Chardonnay in your portfolio? Maybe. No, I mean, we need to distinguish, we need to talk about Chardonnay for a second, because people maybe think that Chardonnay tastes like butter, but that's a process that they that the winemaker puts it through, that Chardonnay actually has a lot of acidity, naturally, right, yeah, right. and then if you taste a French Chardonnay, without going through malolactic fermentation that makes it buttery, then you're going to have a much brighter, brighter wine, but... A lot of times what I see on the restaurant side is that the mouthfeel is what's important. Yeah. That they don't really want to go to the oak, heavy oak and heavy butter. But Chardonnay, you have to tame the acidity to make it friendly at, you know, at $12 a glass or whatever. Right. White, white burgundy is just fine. We can all have a bottle of that for 50 bucks. But 
you know, the mouthfeel is very important. Well, that's a really good point because uh, when you're at a restaurant, somebody might think they want a buttery Chardonnay at home, but then when they're at a restaurant, uh, you want a little bit more acidity to be having with food. So then their impressions might be uh, a little bit skewed and, and they might not even be cognizant of what is going on where that buttery character is less ideal with the food. Karen, do you? Well, do no, because yeah. I, I just think, I've, I've seen it on the restaurant side when I was working in restaurants, and I, and I see it now, the retail, how many, and it seems like most of the time, it's women, <laughs> they, they want what they want, right. and yeah. they don't care where they are. Right. And they, That's they, true, yeah. There are restaurants in, in Westlake built on that. <laughs> exactly, yeah. there are. But, and they're, they're going to want to drink the same thing, no matter what. But it, it, it does open the door for other Chardonnay to come through. Sure. Yeah. Okay, because they because Americans love their varietals. They want they they don't what do you want to memorize what goes into a Francia Corte sparkling wine from Italy. Right. Which may be Chardonnay and Pinot Noir, but that's too complicated. So I mean it does open the door for little white burgundies, Macon. You see you see Chardonnay from other regions by the glass now. A right. lot more. Okay. So so that, that, again, searching out the lesser known region within that grape variety. So our, you bring up a good point that I want you to hone in on a little bit. Is um, is having the variety on the label all that important or are blends yes. okay? Yes. Yeah. Yes, it is important. <laughs> it makes people feel more comfortable. Right. Because, yeah. And even it's, again, I think they feel like they've cracked the code. Right. I, I think you'll see that trend continue that the European producers have yelled uncle on that to a certain extent. Right. And I, I, and they're, and they're putting, I mean, Char- not going to put it on a premier crew white burgundy, but on a, on a white burgundy under $20, it's, you'll see Chardonnay. Right. Right. Yeah. What about, uh, we'll take a break in just a second here, but um, I want to ask you about some of the historic regions of Europe that might be trying to reinvent themselves. And uh, I want your impressions, such as Greece or Portugal or Austria, these, I, I feel like they kind of come into vogue and then almost fall out and maybe it never sticks. What Do people, Karen, do people come in looking for, um, you know, are they open to Greek wine that's uh, trying to reinvent itself? Greek wine, not so much. No. I, I have a very difficult time, time selling Greek wine. And, and so I don't carry much right. at all. Sure. But speaking of Austrian wine, there is a new generation, I think, of Austrian winemakers coming to the fore, and they're making very friendly, very fun wines to yeah. drink. And, um, and I'm, I'm having great success selling some of those. Yeah. And it's very, I love And what about Portuguese wines? I just got back from an extended trip in Portugal. Uh, do you see that uh, as taking off or as much as Spain? I mean, because that's uh, quite a bit behind Spain, right? In- it is. And I, Portuguese wines are great. And I love them. And I love how friendly they are. Right. I love price-wise and palate-wise. Very friendly wines. Uh, but I get very few people coming in asking for them. Yeah. I usually, it's a matter of steering them that way. And usually it's a price point consideration when I do. Right. I think this is a good point to distinguish between, from the industry's perspective on what is a, what is a, a restaurant wine and what is a retail wine. Yeah. So your, your comments here on Portugal is, 
if if we go to a retail store and there's this Portuguese wine, you can't pronounce the grapes. It's a blend, typically. Typically, yeah. And you say, I have no idea what this is. For some reason, Americans get scared of wine, but they'll eat anything. Okay, <laughs> so and 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 they. But if they go to a restaurant and the, and there's there's some a sommelier there going, oh, this is fantastic. You should try it here. Try some of it. They're friendly. They're delicious. And voila, they buy it. Right. Okay. But but then there's a disconnect that they don't say, come into you, Karen, and say that, hey, in this restaurant, I had this amazing wine from the Doro. What do you have from the Doro? Because or, you know or, what? Because they can't pronounce Doro. Right. And yeah. they're terrified that they're going to look silly. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Let alone Sinomavro, right? <laughs> from, from Greece. Sinomavro. <laughs> yeah. I mean. That'll never happen. I mean, Greece is a good example of that, too. That, that, that you know, the importer that we had on the show yeah. last year, they are targeting restaurants. And those price points are not, those are not friendly retail price points. They know that they're doing high quality and, it, and it, you can't do it on the cheap. Right. Right. You know, so hopefully we'll see more of these things come in and change, but it's. And then from your perspective, do you are you seeing the restaurant sommeliers being more open to these weird and wacky oh, yeah. old grapes that have been revitalized? Do they search for it? Yes, but a lot of times I get pushback just like her on price points. So the Greek so the Greek portfolio, it's everyone acknowledges it's stellar, but they are under a lot of pressure from consumers. Austin sure. is not Houston. Yeah. Okay? We we this price points have to need to be kept in check. Right. And that and that they're 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 like I love your uh Cremante Bergon Rose, but it's 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 fifteen eighty three. I needed it twelve eighty three. Right. And you know. so that it's people are just more price sensitive whereas you you say in Houston, maybe Dallas, it's uh, more money is thrown around uh, with with these uh, oddball wines, or you or, know, it, or just higher price points. Right. Hey, you guys, we have to take one last short break, and we'll be back then to have some final thoughts. The hour is flying by. It's one fifty-two in Austin, Texas. My name is Mark Rayshap, and this is another Bottle Down on Co-op Radio. Uh, you'll be able to uh, podcast this conversation and, and all conversations. Koop dot org slash another bottle down. All right, we're back. Uh, we've got about seven minutes to go in the show. This is another Bottle Down. My name is Mark Grayshop, and we're live in the studio with John Duncan and Karen Dante from King Liquors. Um, if, if folks want to find more about y'all, uh, John, you're kind of hard. You're behind the scenes. You don't really have... Uh, is there websites that people can see your wines? Not really. No. Okay. <laughs> you're more behind the scenes. We just have to savor your, your, your words here. I have I, many of them, though. They, they, they call me the wine mercenary at Wine Belly. Right. Okay. <laughs> and Karen King Liquors up on Burn It, where yes. people can see uh, the website. Um, well, or no, no. Web, no website, but they can come in and see me. Okay. And, and I would love to talk to them about wine and awesome. sell them something they maybe have never had before. All right. All right. Um, wonderful. And again, guys, I appreciate you being here. Um, any final thoughts? What um, We've got a few minutes left. So we've talked about sparkling wines. We've talked about some of these uh, Cab and Chardonnay, the namestays and where they're going. Uh, we've touched on some of the old world regions. What um, uh, One of the things that I always lament about is... Uh, dessert wines and fortified wines, and I'm just waiting for the year that they take off a little bit more. Are you guys with me on that? Where 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 do we stand on on these? Karen is just I'm, shaking her head. I'm, in, I'm glad you're a young man, Mark. <laughs> 
You have plenty of time. Because it's not going to happen soon. Right. <laughs> no, but they, they um, I think that that is considered a part of a more elegant dining scene than we, uh, than we live with here in our casual little city. Uh, elegant, I think that that's a good point, but also does speed of dining uh, affect that as well? I mean, mm. sometimes... Um, yeah. Speed of dining and being able to drive home afterwards. Well, yeah, yeah. I think it's had a large effect on a lot of people's drinking habits. Right. Um, which is not necessarily a bad thing. We want to be safe. Yeah, we exactly. Want everybody in Austin to be safe. Um, and, and, and so you're right. After having a bottle of wine with dinner with you and your loved one, to have some port or sauterne or something afterwards is sometimes difficult on the, the, the um, consumption level. That's why I get a lift. Yeah. Every time I go out. Right. Not, I mean, just because my permit's in danger, but it's, it's not worth it. Right. Why risk it? But I, I think, ironically, what you'll see is the opposite. You'll see lower alcohol levels. I think those are very trendy with a lot of California winemakers. You're going to see. Explain that a little gonna, bit more. See, so certain grapes might have lower alcohol levels, but then also in these regions, you can make wines with a little bit lower alcohol. Right? Yeah. It's more, it's more of a technique or a winemaker decision with some with some wines and i think you'll see that that people don't want to get a boozy heavy uh wine that tastes hot to the palate they don't want to get you know don't want to get a, a drunk on you know it's not a glass of not a martini um and also it's going to help the balance of the wine right and i think you'll see more of that there's movements in california right which is notorious for that because it's a warm climate sure you have you have more warmth you get more out al- more sugars and translates to alcohol so i think you'll actually see that more but Do the you- other side of it also too is is global is uh, climate change well and no climate doubt. change is also yeah. having a great effect on say ice vines yeah ice vines are getting fewer and fewer right. in this industry because yeah. it's just not cold enough to make them yeah there's there's no debate in the wine industry about climate change yeah there's no controversy right right Right, I mean, it, and it's producers all the time are in this studio commenting on that 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 that, that they have to be doing things different in, with their land because uh, year to year, if they don't, that, then they're not going to be making as good wine. What was the article? I mean, it came out not real long ago talking about how it's not going to be that far in the future. It's going to be too hot in Napa right. to grow Cabernet. Right. Think about think about the world of that Napa Cabernet. That's yeah. that's. It's Scary. wild. And I was actually just having a conversation yesterday that in most of the best regions of France, you're not allowed to irrigate. But just recently mm-hmm. in uh, in the Rhone Valley, they are uh, allowing, uh, you have to petition the government, but, but they are starting to allow irrigation in places. Mm-hmm. And then there's all rules behind how you can irrigate, but, but you have it's to irrigate. It's a two-edged sword. Right. It's a two-edged sword. Right. That's a game changer. And irrigation. Yeah, it is mm-hmm. and not necessarily a good game changer either. Right, because it affects the quality of the wine mm-hmm. and then it also might affect other agricultural products in the entire environment of vines are typically not needing as much water mm-hmm. and can access. But with climate change, it's a it's a different beast, right? It is. Well, guys, um, thank you again for being here. Any any final final comments, final, final comments? <laughs> I think that the, t- the topic of sparkling wine just shows how Austin can evolve and yeah, change. Right. And that 
and that it, it's going to happen. We, I don't know where it's going to go. You know, yeah. um, I'm, I'm focused on a small sure. section of the, of the, of the, of the, of the market, but there's, you're, you're going to get a whole new generation drinking wine once they stop drinking cocktails. Right. And you're going to see a live, very adventurous clientele that is not going to be stuck in a, in, in, in a rut. And we will be here to comment on it and to have yeah. amazing folks like you. Karen Dante, thank you so much. Uh, this has been wonderful. Um, King Liquor up on Burnett Road. And uh, I love your selection. And, uh, and John Duncan, who is behind the scenes uh, with Dionysus and uh, New Vintage and a bunch of other portfolios. We got to run. This has been another Bottle Down on Co-op Radio. Have a wonderful week, everybody. Happy uh, Valentine's Day. We intentionally didn't do a Valentine's show, but uh, I hope that there's a lot of love going on tomorrow. So we'll see you next week, everybody.